Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to the very first episode of Let Me Introduce Myself. Those of you that already know me from the Real Life Ghost Stories podcast will know that I love to listen to stories. And I've decided to take my love of listening to stories one step further by starting this podcast. Each episode I'll sit down with a different guest and discuss an aspect of their life that I'm interested in. For this first episode I sat down with my friend Paddy to talk about what it was like to grow up as a Catholic in Belfast during the Troubles. Paddy has been a friend of mine for a few years now and we share a love of history, football and decent coffee and I think that comes through in our chat. Hi Paddy, how are you doing? Hello Dan, yeah I'm very well thank you. Good, good. It's a little bit awkward but I was just wondering if maybe you could just give us a little bit introduction as to who you are. Yeah sure, well my name is Paddy McKeating, I am from Belfast but I live in Canterbury, I'm in my mid-30s and I am a history teacher. So a very exciting combination for me because you are from the town that I live in and you're also a history teacher, which is uh, what I did a degree in. So that is very exciting indeed. Um, now, Paddy, you're with us today and sort of the focus of these episodes is, is to have a kind of a loose topic that we, we start discussing and then see where the conversation goes. Um, so today we're talking about where you grew up. Would you like to tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Sure. So I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So I was born in 1986 and a very odd place to to grow up in. I only realised this when I left when I was 18 actually. Yeah, it was a place, a very violent place to grow up, a really, really segregated society. And it was a place filled with uh, civil strife, shootings, bombings, things like that. But really, I grew up in a beautiful, leafy, middle-class existence. Rarely, if ever, did that really violent society negatively impact on on my lovely childhood really it's always been somewhere that sort of fascinated me because when I was growing up it was in the news a lot for not always the most positive of reasons but actually as I got a little bit older the the news stories that we were getting were, were much more positive about sort of the peace process and stuff like that I was just wondering if I could start by asking you when you sort of first realised as a child that there was divide in society, so to speak. Well, I knew... (laughs) (laughs) Tricky question to start with. (laughs) It is, yeah, because you grow up knowing that your identity, so a very, very Irish identity, brought up in a strict Catholic family. So 
I would have had the culture of, um, I suppose, a cultural nationalism, really, of, you know, Gaelic football, supporting the Republic of Ireland football team. I suppose quite an extended family who would have been into the same thing. No, never any uh, acknowledgement that we were in any way British or anything like that. Okay. Um, so very much even you would have known that your national flag was green, white, or orange. So when you drove through an area which had lots of British Union flags, red, white, and blue, painted paved stones or curved stones, then you knew that you were somewhere which wasn't of your culture. So you became really aware of that growing growing up. And especially, you know, if you're going into town, you were driving around Belfast as a city, which was, which was quite small. But <laughs> I remember that our society was different and that we were different when my family, we drove to the south of France for a holiday in like okay. the, the early 90s. And we had to drive through England. And uh, we met my dad in London, I think. So my mum had to drive <laughs> seven of us <laughs> wow. in a car from, yeah, from Belfast all the way down to Dublin, which back then would have taken about four hours, maybe, okay. maybe five hours. So we were in Folkestone. So I've got this, this odd memory of Folkestone. And of course, then I ended up moving to Canterbury, you know, once I yeah. met my wife and fell in love and all that kind of thing. Oh. <laughs> but uh, Canterbury, of course, being close to Folkestone. But I remember, so we, we went to Folkestone and, and we were on, on the beach. And I remember asking my mum, I can't even remember what I was looking at. Incidentally, I killed a seagull, but that's, that's a whole other story. And I can't remember it. <laughs> but my mum sort of recoils in horror when she thinks about it. I remember asking my mum, was was this particular building bombed out? And that sort of weird phrase. And I remember her just immediately saying, like, be quiet. No, 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 don't, don't speak, don't speak. And then, you know, I sort of went off seagull hunting, apparently. Um, and I remember in... London doing uh, doing an English accent and then getting yelled at instantly and then it was that sort of thing of going like ah there's we're in a very different place here and you could sort of tell my mum was obviously a little bit scared of someone you know maybe saying something to her and of course they wouldn't have but of course she was of a generation where when she was maybe in around 1920 mm. would have come over to London and probably experienced some uh, some anti-Irish sentiment. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess like the approach towards Irish people is obviously still there's still pockets where it's not acceptable and and the way that we the way that British people sort of interact with Irish people is is still maybe derogatory in areas and stuff like that but I guess we're only talking 10 20 years before you were born and it was a very anti-Irish sentiment that was in Britain. So it would have been a completely different experience, I'd imagine, for your mother. Yeah, I think so. Well, actually, my, my, my dad has some brilliant stories. You know, he, uh, so in the early 70s, yeah. <clears throat> him and his friends went over to London at the summertime to work. They were in Muswell Hill, of all places, which is this beautiful, leafy part of North London, which is houses sort of cost upwards of probably a million, a million and a half quid now. But, easily. But they, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very easily. But him and his friends went over and at their local pub, there was a sign out, outside, you know, your stereotypical uh, racism, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. So they went into the pub and said, can we speak to the landlord, please? And if you know, someone shuffled away and some fella comes out and he said, listen, <clears throat> we're Irish. We're not meant to be in here, but... We're over here for a couple of months and we drink a lot and we probably won't be in any trouble. So either you can take down the sign and we'll drink in here and we will spend a lot of money or we can just go somewhere else. 
And at first, the guy, <laughs> he obviously saw a group of fellas who were eager to, to drink a lot, you know. He took the sign down and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and moved on. And, you know, I suppose that was one of those things that so often with discrimination, once you actually encounter someone uh, of a group that you're scared of or that you dislike or whatever, it turns out to be fine. But incidentally, there's, there's another, <laughs> there's a story with that. So there was, there was my dad and a bunch of his friends were, were over, in, over in London and they, they wanted to contact another friend at home to say, listen, come on over. Uh, you know, we've got jobs in a building site or whatever. I think they're building a car park or a shopping center or something. No, no one in, in, in Belfast, certainly, you know, my dad came from a very working class background. No one had any phones. So they needed to get a message to him. And obviously the best way to get a message to someone at the time is a telegram. Now, uh, being a bunch of fellows who were just over working on a building site, they didn't have any money. So they, <laughs> so they had to send this guy a telegram. Now, the guy knew that their local pub was called the Nags Head. So they must have been there before or something or he'd come over to visit. So they had to pay by the letter to send a telegram. So they sent, they figured out eventually the shortest message they could possibly do. <laughs> and they wrote, Nags, noon, sat, and sent it over. Uh, you know, of course, uh, the message being, come to the Nags head at noon on Saturday, you know, Brilliant. four or five days or whatever to come over. But his mum got the telegram and thought that it was a coded message from the oh, no. so she <laughs> So she thought that this was some sort of message that he was going to blow up a pub in England or anything. Oh. And he had a very sort of, you know, old, very distant relationship with his mother, this fella. So <laughs> the only time his mother ever hugged him was when he was leaving. Because she assumed she, she, she'd never see him again. She oh assumed you know, that was him that he, he was going to get caught and sent to prison. <laughs> and he, he went to London and thought, Jesus, my mom's acting a bit weird. She hugged me when I left. <laughs> and of course, you know, it was the most innocent thing. And they went to the Nags Head on Saturday and lo and behold, he turned up at noon and all that. It's amazing that it, we're in an age now where communication is so easy. And it's really hard to imagine a time when it was even more complicated than it was when I was younger. And to think that you can send a bare bones telegram and everything still works out all right, yet when the signal drops, we think the world's going to end. It's just bizarre to think like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's funny that we're we're all, you know, isolating and, and in quarantine and whatnot at the moment. You know, it's so bizarre, even as, you know, you and I messaging, I'd say maybe every other day, just about a name sort of stuff on WhatsApp and then yeah. doing this, it's... It, it, it's just phenomenal that while we should be, and I suppose in many ways are, many ways are, you know, incredibly lonely where we are, you know, yeah. stuck in our apartments or houses or whatever. And um, it is mad that we just have this phenomenal technology just just right at our fingertips. Especially if you have to pay by the word as well, we definitely wouldn't be sending all those that and name <laughs> messages that are sent to you. I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Was there a moment in your childhood where your parents? spoke to you directly about what what the situation was in or was it just something that you kind of observed as you went around your daily life no it was something um yeah it was something that we that that you just that you just picked up on i remember i must have been year five or year six so i must have been maybe 10 years old possibly 11 and uh, I was walking to school, or I had started walking to school or something. It was maybe like a 20 minute, 25 minute walk. And some guy, he must have been a couple of years older than me, got beaten up by Protestants. And I remember, you know, mum and dad sitting me down and just saying, I think it was probably the first time that they'd acknowledged any sort of, you know, inherent danger in your daily life. 
Uh, no, having said that, if you ever, you know, went to the cinema or something, your mum would always say, <laughs> <laughs> now remember in case there's a bomb scare, you know what to do, find a policeman and get them to call me or, or an army <laughs> man or whatever. But yeah, they said, you know, just sort of keep your eyes peeled and, you know, if anyone looks like they're being aggressive towards you across the road. But then again, I'm sure that that would have happened, probably would have happened anywhere. I'm sure, you know, yeah. people in London would have had the same thing or Dublin or, or, or New York or whatever. But no, I mean, it was largely the division of society. It was something you just picked up. You know, I went to a Catholic school and, and I was exclusively Catholic, you know, and you'd play for the local Catholic football team. And then when I, when I was a bit older, uh, Gaelic football team was set up and, and, and you play for them. I suppose no Protestants would have played Gaelic back then, <laughs> unfortunately. But it's weird. You you just you, you just picked up things and you knew. I remember news was a really big thing growing up and especially local news. And, you know, you'd you'd, you'd sort of sit down and watch it. You know, not to talk during, or during it or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But actually the comments that your parents would make, then you would start to figure out, aha, okay, so... So we're on that side. That's uh, <laughs> and that, that very black and white way that you look at the world as a child. You know, these these are the good guys. The, the, those are the bad guys. Mm. And um, that, I, I guess maybe in a weird way, not not dissimilar to I know that uh, West Ham is very dear to your heart. Absolutely, <laughs> and, and dear to your family. And mm. uh, yeah, I suppose that it's it's maybe not too dissimilar, not too dissimilar to that. And then of course, you know you you become a teenager and then, you know, you start to, to hate the other side and all this sort of nonsense. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think that it was ever explicitly explained to me. Is it no, something but, that, uh, that was taught in schools? No, I remember actually the first job I got as a history teacher was in, was in London, in Westminster. I think you were talking about why I was interested in history and I probably just gave my, uh, <laughs> the growing up in Belfast, which actually is totally true because everyone who lives in Northern Ireland and possibly Ireland, I suppose actually every culture growing yeah. up has a certain role that history plays. VA days coming up in Britain and it's a bank holiday this year and yeah. whatnot. But, but history played a really, really active role growing up and yeah history was something which was which was very alive in Belfast so essentially every every July a group called the Orange Men so a sort of you know representative of of the unionist of of the Protestant community they would celebrate the Battle of the Boyne every year which was essentially now that I know the English history around it yeah it was essentially an extension of a partial English civil war after the actual English civil yeah. <laughs> war fought, um, I suppose fought just south of where the border of Northern Ireland is mm-hmm. today. And what they would do every every July, every 12th of July, they would commemorate this battle, um, even though the battle actually took place on the 1st of July, but that's a whole other, whole other historical <laughs> anecdote. Every year, they would have these marches and these, uh, these, these sort of men wearing black suits, black ties, big bowler hats and orange sashes would uh, would you know march up and down roads and actually each year we had to leave and and you know i think almost everybody that i went to school with you know primary school secondary school would leave the city as i got older and it got a bit more peaceful you might only leave for four or five days yeah. but for the most part growing up it would have been about about two weeks you just had to get out of the city because you wouldn't stay there for the marches i remember the, the first march that i saw was just this negative atmosphere of course which, which would have been fueled by my uh, by my by my judgments of it but it was it, w- it was really scary actually but anyway we would leave every year because there was a huge argument throughout i suppose throughout the troubles really from mm-hmm. you know the, the the late 60s onwards that if orange men got to march in a certain area and they were permitted to march there 
then the Catholics would all riot. But then if they weren't allowed to march because it was a Catholic area, then Protestants would riot. And now I say this in the loosest term, it would have been a minuscule (laughs) part of the population. But it was this huge, passionate, hot atmosphere. You know, of course, it took place at the summertime Mm. as well, you know, so... Essentially, every every twelfth of July, you'd, you'd have to get out. You know, you, you'd have to leave. And, and generally, we would go to Donegal, which is in the Republic of Ireland, but yeah. it's actually really far north. Or you know, as time went on, maybe we went to Portugal or, or or somewhere like that. But I remember one one year we left very early in the morning at the twelfth of July, and the whole family were you know packed in our people carrier. I've got I've got three brothers, three sisters, mum and dad. Leaving Belfast, it was burnt out trucks and. I think buses as well. No, it was just just big lorries, big trucks at the side of the road from where wow. they were being rioting the night before. And actually, the, the, the weird thing, just looking back now, it didn't really seem that out of place. And I remember the one thing that stands out was a couple of kids, probably about my age, actually waving a huge Irish tricolor at the side of the road as we um, <laughs> as we were sort of <laughs> escaping, driving to I don't know the airport or or or, or wherever it was. And I think it must have been that year. Or maybe it was a, a another year where my dad flew in, probably in around the ninth, tenth, eleventh, uh, and actually he he'd flown into Belfast International Airport, which is just outside the city, yeah. and a taxi driver. God, now that I said it's surreal because this was the nineties, you know. Yeah. Clinton was president of America, you know. Labour were about to take over in in Britain, and actually the taxi driver said, "There's there's roadblocks here. They they closed off uh, the west part of the city, wow. so you're just gonna have to get out and walk." Yeah, so. But the odd thing is that while, you know, Dad would have had to walk half an hour or whatever um, across the city, n- none of us really would have, it wouldn't have affected our life. We're probably just out playing in the garden, you know, arguing in the paddling pool or something like that. Yeah, bigger issues um, at that age, I think. <laughs> bigger issues, yeah. It's, it's a real turf war, Dad, you know, <laughs> we got to go down the slide in the paddling pool first. Just to go back to the original question, although I've got some other things that I'd love to ask you, was it was it something that was taught in schools, or was it just kind of accepted that you you kind of understood the situation that you were in? How on earth did I go on to tell you? I mean, that was a great story, so there's no regrets. (laughs) Um, Here's the thing: no, it it wasn't taught in schools because yes. So when I got my first teaching job, they asked me, you know, the role of history in the curriculum or something. And I actually happened to mention to them that I, you were never really taught Irish history at school. You would have got a little bit of it. You would get, you know, a little bit on the famine, but a lot of it was British history. Interesting. Um, and you'd, yeah, and you know, you'd maybe do the creation of Belfast in the 1600s, and then you would sort of skip over maybe do Belfast up until the Titanic or something. Yeah. And then you'd be thinking, right, we're getting to the stuff which explains why. We have to get a, a police escort where we're getting our bus to secondary school or whatever. And then and then that would be it. They'd be like, all right, so um, we'll just glaze over the next 70 or 80 years. So it was never taught. And, and for the life of me, I get no idea why. We were never really told. And I suppose we never really asked. But um, it's very odd that, you know, we, we grew up in, in a very segregated and a set, quite a violent society. Mm. But no, you were never taught, um, never really taught anything about it. Perhaps it was that young men and women might get riled up and, and yeah. start a fight with another with another school on, on the way home or something. Of course, I went to, to a grammar school, so we would have been the ones, and regularly were the ones who were beaten up by the, <laughs> by the high schools in the area. And so, no, it was, you were never really taught about it. You've got a very 
not skewed necessarily. You got you got an oral history, I suppose, and you would pick up things and you would listen to things. Of course, back in the Stone Age times, uh, yeah. you know, there was you couldn't like look up a documentary or anything. And actually, yeah, documentaries, I suppose, weren't really being made at the time because um, I suppose you were in the middle of history being made. I guess so. It was um, yeah, it was quite odd. So no, you you wouldn't really wouldn't really learn about much at all. A bit of an unfair question, but I think, uh, but I'm going to ask anyway because you know that's that's my job. <laughs> Do you think, in hindsight, it was a bad move that they, it's not something that was covered in schools? <clears throat> Taking into account that you're now a teacher and you are a history teacher as well, and you know the importance that history plays in society, do you think that? it was the right move to have sort of a limited discussion on it? Or do you think it's something that may have actually built bridges sooner? As I said, because the society was so divided, even if you learnt about, I don't know, yeah, Brian Faulkner, you know, one of the last prime ministers of, of Northern Ireland, yeah, you knew bare, practically no Protestants to actually talk about it with. You know, so yeah, even if you learnt about it in school, there was no way to really apply that history. But then again, that come to think about it yeah it probably was a mistake actually yeah and maybe in other schools they they did learn about it but um yeah not 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 i think about it um yeah probably was yeah yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hold you to account on your on your article at all it's just (laughs) i just intrigued it's kind of where my mind was going with it that's all yeah um so growing up did you you went to a catholic primary school and was the grammar school exclusively catholic as well yeah so it would have been roughly would have been the, the size of quite a big local secondary school that we'd have over in England, you mm. know, so maybe 1,200 pupils. Okay. Every size. single one of them Catholic, every single one of them white, every single one of them local, yeah. or at least Irish. So, yeah, very um, mono, monocultural. I'm yeah. not sure if that's the phrase I'm looking for, yeah. Did you know Protestants? I mean, it sounds like a really sort of basic question, but I, I guess if you're, you know, if you're living in in a sort of educational bubble where you where you go to school with with just catholics and that's kind of who you mix with was it that there were mm. people of your age of, that were protestants that you knew no no there was a what we call in, in retrospect such a weird term a mixed family lived next door you right. know catholic and protestant parents and but no you, you would have known the odd person i suppose like we would have known our next door neighbors but everything was just so segregated mm. so um even you know the swimming that we went to it was essentially like a without ever meaning to be it was probably just a catholic swimming club because all of the let's say sub communities within the community that we were in were all maybe through going to mass uh, and then our primary school was directly linked to that church and then the the football team that I played for would have been linked to that church. And then, of course, all your friends who are, you know, and you, you would know through those things. Yeah, I suppose you just never would have never would have come across people. Now, now the football team, or Protestants are people, <laughs> but the football team that I played for, we were in the, the South Belfast League. Okay. And we were the only Catholic team in the league. And it was horrendous you know at, at the age of maybe 11 or 12 yeah where you'd be going to i remember where we went to an away match couldn't have been older than 12 possibly 10 and we were playing it would have been in in the summertime i, I say playing in the loosest form of the, of the word down i would have been on on the substitute uh, <laughs> substitute bench. So, i'm sure you're a star player I'm just you just being modest uh, <laughs> no no genuinely, genuinely. <laughs> got about maybe two minutes at the end of the match but um, this pitch was like in, in the centre of an estate. 
Yeah. And I remember like grown men screaming abuse at you, watching in retrospect, you know, a bunch of 11 year olds kicking a ball around. And we went into the changing rooms, I remember, and uh, they were broken glass anyway, but it was covered with sort of a metal gauze, I suppose. And uh, people chucking stones, bricks at no us. Way. And we were getting changed. Yeah, yeah, we we're getting changed, you know, sort of wet behind the ears, sort of, you know, middle class Catholic boys absolutely petrified and then you, you you play the game and of course you know if the referee was either sent by the league it was maybe a manager of another team or something we were the only catholic team in the league so the referee would blatantly ignore someone getting punched in the head you know rule out a goal that, that we scored because mm. well obviously uh, you know it was a catholic team yeah you'd, you'd, you'd be getting dogs abuse you know it was absolutely horrendous and a lot of those experiences then on, on a saturday morning would, of course, then they would feed into your natural prejudices yourself. Yeah. You know, so then that, that would sort of harden you. But then, of course, you know, like I said, we, we had a sort of nice middle-class existence. And so when I was 13 in our in our area, a Gaelic football team was created, and uh, which is quite a big deal, actually, because I, I grew up in, as I said, you know, quite, quite an affluent area, and I've been traditionally quite unionist and, and mm. Protestant. There was such a big Catholic community that, you know, of course, the cultural nationalism of a, of a Gaelic football team was started. So we, play, <laughs> so we played then in the league, obviously, of course, being Gaelic football, it was all Irish, it was all sort of Catholic nationalists. Oh, we were despised in that league. So I'd gone from playing football, you know, <laughs> soccer, being, you know, the only Catholic team in the league and, uh, you know, these terrifying experiences yeah. on a Saturday morning or whatever. So then playing Gaelic football, thinking, oh, this would be better, you know, this this would be lovely. So getting, again, huge amount of abuse for being a, a new team and B, middle class. So uh, wow. we, you know, got uh, <laughs> essentially the same level of discrimination, but this time it was more class-based, which I possibly preferred, but um, it was, I suppose, equally... Well, I suppose not necessarily equally violent, I suppose, equally discriminatory. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the tribulations of, of growing up with sport in Northern Ireland, you know. So was there enough of a Catholic community within Belfast to sustain a Gaelic football league then? I guess there must have been a stupid question, but. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, there was. Yeah. Huge amount. So there would be, I mean, there'd be several divisions, actually. And then so Belfast is half of its county down and half of its county Antrim. So we mm-hmm. would play in the Antrim League. And yeah, yeah, you you'd have a number of teams. Uh, yeah, real real commitment to the sport, you know, and it's it's absolutely thriving and kind of always did oddly throughout the troubles. I think in the same way that football, of course, did. But I imagine there was hockey leagues, rugby leagues, yeah. all that kind of thing. Unfortunately, sports that we never really came across. But yeah, you 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 would have had um, easily enough teams to play against, and yeah, just to sort of maintain that thriving community. It didn't make our our county team good in any way, you know. And <laughs> they were they were and are awful. Kind of oddly, coming from a city, you would expect that they would have that sort of grit that generally leads to street players. But, yeah, but but that wasn't the case. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From the podcast that I've kind of listen to about Irish soccer in the Republic there seems to be sort of a, a sentiment that you at some point you choose between sports so you either go with soccer or you or you stick with the GAA was there the same kind of pressure on you or people um in your sort of friendship group in in Belfast or was it actually you just you could just do both quite comfortably and it was expected that you did both yeah you, you could do both you could do both quite comfortably really um and uh, I think both sports, they really, really complement each other. Uh, you know, I mean, football is obviously really technical, really quite difficult mm-hmm. based around the feet. But, but once you have that coordination and Gaelic football, I suppose I should explain what it is for listeners. It's almost a mix between basketball, soccer and I suppose like American football or rugby. But no, there was there was none of that, really. I think I'm trying to think now there was a guy that I went to school with, went on to captain the county and uh, he was, you know, very, very gifted player. And but I'm pretty sure he would have played football right up until he was about 15 or 16. And then maybe probably would have been told by his club or maybe even the county board or something not to play the other sport. But no, I don't think there I don't think there would have been that focus, really. I think in more more in the south of Ireland. I suppose Gaelic would hold, I suppose it would have held a wood hold or the position that the Catholic Church used to hold in society. You know, that it's very based along parish lines. Yeah. It might hold a little bit more power over someone than maybe in, in Belfast where there wouldn't be that maybe community influence might, might, might be the hmm. wrong phrase. But either way, no, there was no real competition between the two sports. I think it was generally acknowledged, uh, you know, if you were good at one sport, you tended to be good at the other one as well. Yeah. I'd say probably for for most you know teenagers growing up, there's there's a, a time where you kind of nail your colours to a post and, and maybe choose a team or choose a, a sport to follow or decide that you're just not in sport altogether. For you growing up in Belfast, how what was your supporting life like? Where did your loyalties lie? How did you find any loyalties that you may have, or was it just well, that you kind of rooted for what was going on in front of you? <laughs> I suppose with, with Gaelic football and hurling, it's very different in that you don't have the choice that you yeah. have in football. You're kind of, I would love to have choice, but you're kind of, <laughs> you're just, you have to support the county that you're from. Now, yeah. if, you re- if you want to be sneaking for it and your dad is from, or your mum's from somewhere really successful, like, you know, Kerry or, or Dublin, you know, somewhere glamorous like that, yeah. then you could support them. But no, you and in, in those sports, you just you have, you have to you have to play the hand you're given, uh, which in my case is Antrim. 
Football-wise, for me, it always would have been the Republic of Ireland. You know, my first love, I suppose, sports-wise, you know. Um, remember, like, when, when Ray Houghton scored in USA yeah. 94 against Italy, I think. It was probably, <laughs> up until that point, the, the greatest moment of my life. Just that pure, uh, that pure <laughs> ecstasy. But, of course, then, you know, countries don't play against each other every week. So mm. I supported Liverpool on the basis that they had a lot of Irish players. Which is logical. Um, which is logical, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in some other universe, Dan, I, I could have been a fellow hammer to you as well, you <laughs> know, trudging along <laughs> to the Berlin ground. But well, though, so I supported Liverpool. And then, funnily enough, though, I, I never would have had any affinity to the Northern Ireland football team. Uh, when I left Northern Ireland uh, when I was 18 and, and, and went to university in Dublin, bit by bit, you know, you started to become um, more more accepting, more liberal, more open. But actually this sort of, this negative feeling towards a Northern Ireland football team took a long time to to shake off. Really because, you know, un- unfortunately the uh, there was a, a huge rivalry between the Republican, Re- Republican the North when it came to football. Yeah. And um, as with so many things in sport, and I suppose society as well, you're defined by, not just by what you love, but what you mm. hate. I suppose even then a local football, the most local football team to me would have been the most successful one in Northern Ireland called Linfield. They would have been maybe a 25 minute, maybe half an hour walk away. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I mean, they were were scary, you know. I think it would have been really dangerous to go there, actually, Mm -hmm. especially with a name like Paddy or Patrick, you know. uh, You you would stand out, uh, you'd stand out like a sore somewhere. So weirdly, that just, that was never an option. You would just never follow that team. I suppose there was a Catholic team in the league I think there was the glamour of, of English football, really. Yeah. And also, you know, in pl- playing their trade in, in England where all of all of the best Irish players, and, and they always had done as well, mm. um, right the way back to the creation of the FA or whatever, I think the best Irish players had always gone across across the Irish Sea. So, so naturally, yeah, you would, um, you would sort of nail <laughs> your colours down mast over there, you know? Yeah. And so is it, was it just sort of culturally accepted that if you were born to a, to a Catholic family, in Northern Ireland, you still supported the Republic. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Uh, I don't think I ever came across anyone who was a Catholic that supported Northern Ireland. It was just, you, you just wouldn't do it. It was mm. culturally, probably until in and around the Good Friday Agreement, sort of 1998, when changes would have started to have been made. It wasn't open. It was unfortunately quite uh, quite a closed shop for, for Catholics within Northern Ireland. Um, I think a guy in my primary school class supported both because his dad had actually played for Northern Ireland. But no, you, you, you just you just wouldn't have done. There was a particular World Cup qualifier in 1993 when the Republic of Ireland team came up to play in Belfast. And, and that's really famous for a real, probably one of the worst sporting atmospheres actually throughout the Troubles. I think the, the Republic fans were, were advised to stay away and police in Northern Ireland directed the Irish coach, you know, quite through some quite dangerous areas and yeah. that, that that was one of the sort of I suppose maybe darker sporting days of the troubles uh but I suppose I, I would have been in primary school at the time so mm-hmm. you know you're only really concerned with did Ireland qualify for the World Cup which they did but no I, I suppose that divide along the lines of football and society was just so so stark and actually um when Ireland went on to play Italy and New York, and there was a real pride. Actually, even, even I remember at the time from from the BBC and, and my mum just being so delighted that on the BBC they were supporting Ireland. And she, w- I remember this 
huge amount of pride from her that there was uh, that, you know, that sort of uh, that song, when Irish eyes were smiling. Yeah. There was an ad on, on BBC for Ireland playing against Norway. How'd it go? When Irish eyes are smiling, the whole world is bright and gay. Yes, when Irish eyes are smiling, we're sure to beat Norway or something like that. Yeah. But because that was a you know the British Broadcasting Corporation, I think that that was a that was a, a huge sort of step forward. Yeah. I think even just that odd symbolism. And um, but during that match when Ireland beat Italy, a gunman could come into a pub in a Catholic area of Northern Ireland and and just shot dead a number of people yeah and uh, of course i suppose knowing that anyone who was watching a football match mm. in the republic of ireland you were all you were guaranteed that they were going to be catholic so um i think a lot of the footballers who were involved that day talk about you know how amazing the day was of yeah. course roy king doesn't because you know Boston's, <laughs> no one waited for him when he had a drugs test or something but players all said you know they they got on the coach and just after you know 80, 90,000 in, in the giant stadium, mm. hearing that, that some of their fans had been murdered uh, that day back in, in, in Ireland. I think really brought the sort of, brought the atmosphere down and really brought home like what, what, what sport means. So I suppose within Northern Ireland, then the link back to your question, that sport was really a huge divider. It, it, it really, really was. Today, it, 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 the wounds aren't healed, I suppose, let's say. But I suppose yeah. that the society is developing to be a lot more open and whatnot. It was very funny about hearing about what you said about your mum and and the BBC's coverage because obviously that's my sort of first real World Cup memory is that World Cup and it was just I think being being 10 and not really understanding the situation I was just so behind Ireland in that World Cup because it was the closest Mm. thing to home for us and and we were the coverage on the BBC was very much this is the team that you need to support while they're in the World Cup which thinking about it out of context and in hindsight is absolutely bizarre it's not like it is today in terms of those those relations and it's just bizarre to think that actually that's the approach they took but I I never questioned it it was I was an Irish fan until they got knocked out and uh that Italy match is one of the one of my most vivid memories along with not being allowed to stay up and watch the final um <laughs> which I think in high again in hindsight was probably a good thing because it's not the best match in the world no but... nil all right the penalties. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah um and, and actually, yeah, I, I totally agree. In retrospect, you really have to hand it to the BBC because I think that at the time, I think that actually members of Sinn Féin were still not allowed to talk on BBC. They actually, they had to get actors' mm. voices to to read in, you know, if Jerry Adams was making a statement or, or, or Martin McGuinness. Or, and in 94, I imagine that would have been in place or if it wasn't, it was probably only recently taken away. Yeah. But actually, I think that shows you... Um, was the sort of the healing power of sports, particularly in such a divided society? It was an exciting time that World Cup. So, in terms of Catholicism, what what kind of role did did the religion take in your upbringing? Was it going through the motions thing, or was it a, a central part to your family's lifestyle? Or and and sort of how did you experience the church as a child? I guess not, well, not as a child, but as a, you know, like a teenager. Yeah, it was uh, it was a central part. Yeah, mm. really central, active uh, pillar, I suppose. Growing up, mass every Sunday, mass on holy days, saints days, you know, St Patrick's Day. That would have been right the way through. I remember even go, go, coming home, uh, you know, nineteen or twenty, and not going to mass, but going out for a coffee and telling my mum that I went to mass. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, really, really big part of our life. And and actually, with most people, if someone in your class in school didn't go to mass, they were a little bit odd. So it was it was really, really a, a sort of widespread, deep 
deep faith, you know. Mm. All of my cousins would have gone to mass, aunties and uncles, you know. And then, of course, you would have your, your sacraments, you know, your first confession was a really big day, your yeah. first Holy Communion, your confirmation. They were all really big milestones in your life that you would almost, you know, aside of birthdays, you would reference things to. So yeah, it played a really it played a really central part. And, and then of course, you know, religious education at school, you didn't learn about other faiths. You know, you didn't mm. learn about Muhammad or you know the Jewish faith, or even really anything to do with different Christian interpretations, which yep. would have explained maybe a little bit about the society that we were in. And um, no, you know, you would just focus on on the Catholic faith, which which I must say really really helps me out in pub quizzes. I bet. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know that you had a, a Christian upbringing as well, and I was in a Zoom quiz yesterday. Of course, you know, being in lockdown, I think yep. we're all legally forced to do at least one Zoom quiz a week. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> I was able to name the seat the the following essentially it was books of the Old Testament and the wow. answer was numbers. And uh, I really geeked out on that because I wasn't sure if it was Deuteronomy or numbers. But <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things of by rote learning, you know, I've got all the parables of my head. There's so much space in my head yeah. <laughs> devoted to the Catholic faith. <clears throat> and so would have your of local community that you grew up in, would that have been focused around the church? In terms of social aspects and stuff like that, or was it more on a geographical basis as to who you who you live near, or did they intertwine? <laughs> yeah, they they intertwine. I suppose it, if you had have asked me growing up, what is it? No, you know, I just yeah. go to mass every Sunday. Um, but actually, it it was it was a central point, it was a focal point because the primary school that I went to, mm. St Brides, was. Until they did the, the reefer, it was quite literally attached to, to our local church. All oh, right, okay. So anyone who went to the primary school then would 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 go to mass, and you would know people from mass, and of course you know, be it cousins or friends or whatever, and your parents would know people at mass, and you know they'd you know stay behind afterwards to catch up with their friends and things like that. So mm. it, it played a central focus, and of course funerals would have been would have been masses uh, as would weddings so really yeah it, it played a key role i suppose and yeah yeah it really would have because i suppose within within mass as well you know the the priest would have would have had not 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 a powerful not you know not not as much clout let's say as perhaps a a village in, in the republic of ireland yeah. let's say in the, in the 80s and nineties until until we, we we threw off the yoke of Catholic oppression. But um, <laughs> the the announcements that, that the priest would have made a, a lot of the time at mass, you know, would have been linked to society. Sometimes yeah. to football, actually, if the oh. Republic of Ireland were, were playing a, a key qualifier coming up, or you know, we'd say a, a prayer for Jack Charlton and the boys. Lovely. Um, <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> good good Yorkshireman Jack Charlton there. But um, but of course as well, I remember every week you would you would pray for the leaders of, of both communities to, to get peace. And I remember, you know, praying for, must have been close to the Good Friday Agreement, praying for President Clinton and Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, who was a Taoiseach as a Prime Minister of, of Ireland. But yeah, so so all of those different facets of of society then then would have been would have been linked together by the church, I suppose, yeah. So what was your recollection of the Good Friday Agreement? Or what is your recollection of it? I, I mean, that makes you sound like you were really young when it happened. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I would have been 12. It, it felt like an exciting time because my wife is, is in the next room. If she's listening to this, she, she will burst out laughing because I always talk about this. But in 1995, Bill Clinton came to visit Belfast. And yeah. that was just, 
the impact that that had on I was, I was about to say on, on on my generation but actually i think in, in in northern ireland as a whole was absolutely massive and mm. i think that really started a bit of a buzz uh, a bit of confidence because normally almost always in in the news northern ireland was being portrayed badly or people from northern ireland were making a show of themselves i suppose be it you know, politicians refusing to shake hands, you mm-hmm. know, a political leader complaining about the other community here refusing to do this and, and do that. And actually, they're the most powerful man on the planet. And actually, I would say in, in the mid-90s, probably the most popular man on the planet, Bill Clinton. You know, yeah. when, when we look back on him, uh, we, <laughs> he's, he's got a bit of a tarnished reputation. Maybe this is just Northern Ireland speaking. But I mean, when he came to Belfast and spoke so positively about the place and, and really brought everyone together, you know, I, I remember we, we went to see him speak in the centre of Belfast that night. There was, you know, such a positive atmosphere. Whereas normally when, when you went into the city centre, you you, things were just a little bit tense. But, but, but not that time. And I think that really started a ball rolling of, of optimism. And then, of course, you had Tony Blair getting in the landslide election in 97. Hmm. I had no uh, no idea of Labour, Conservative or whatnot. No. But, but the way he <laughs> talked about Northern Ireland was 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 unique because hmm. you would have grown up with, you know, John Major. Largely, I suppose now I know that he, he needed the Unionist members of Parliament to prop up his government, yeah. but largely speaking negatively about the nationalist community. And then, you know, you had Blair, you had Clinton, and then, of course, Bertie Ahern, who was great. All of that felt natural that it culminated in, in the Good Friday Agreement and officially ended the Troubles. And, you know, for us, ending the Troubles, it, it was something that we, I mean, you just kind of grew up with it. You kind of, to yeah. be honest, I always thought growing up that the Troubles were in the 70s. I didn't realize yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I was actually growing up in them. I just thought there was sporadic killings yeah. and stuff. But I remember we were at my cousin's house. It must have been a, probably a Holy Communion. And all of my aunties and uncles are my, on, on my mum's side. And she's actually one of 15. I remember just the absolute joy on all of their faces. Just looking at the TV, just totally not a drop, a drop of alcohol on sight, you know, because my, my, my grandparents on that side uh, didn't touch the stuff. This huge party <laughs> atmosphere, you know. And we've got a great photo line around somewhere of just... Must be about six or seven aunties and uncles just staring at the screen. Uh, Amazing. The TV, just, yeah, with just pure joy. And, and I think for them, it was, you know, that, that generation, you know, we, we would have experienced, you know, the, the odd bombings and, you mm. know, our schools would have got attacked the odd time. That generation really grew up in a peaceful time in the 50s and 60s and then, you know, bam. Yep. Uh, the trouble started. And, and for them, they, to bring an end to that must have just been the most emotional thing. So, for me, it, it felt logical. It, it mm. felt like um, it felt like Ireland, Britain, America was really, I suppose, going going in a positive direction. You know, um, yeah. again, I didn't know anything about New Labour at the time, but you could sense that Britain was was riding a wave of of optimism. The Republic of Ireland was sort of shaking off decades of economic stagnation, and yeah. and you know, I remember even they had like the fastest economic growth rates in the world and think like god wow and yeah it, it, it just felt right and i suppose yeah it was a culmination of of things that i think really began with with bill clinton coming over and and even now you know he's so highly thought of in northern ireland and actually that that episode of of uh, the the bbc you know channel four comedy dairy girls yeah summed it up perfectly i you know as uh as a positive crossroads moment for for our generation you know amazing 
was um, was it was it noticeable on the on the ground, so to speak? Uh, was the, was the atmosphere different post the agreement, or did it take a while to sort of change? I remember the election campaign for it really clearly because it was yes or no. Yeah. So unlike Brexit, of do you want to leave the European Union? Yeah. The question was, this is a deal that we have negotiated. Do you accept this deal? And so it was actually it was a referendum which was fought with a really clear outcome. And I remember that the yes, sort of yes, they, you know, in some parts of the city, they would have Irish tricolours with yes mm. written on it. And other parts of the city, they would have Union Jacks with yes written on it. But more often, uh, no, mm. <laughs> because I suppose uh, a lot of the unionist community may have seen it as, uh, you know, surrendering some sort of power or something mm. like that. But I remember the most vivid thing for me would be the traffic lights. People stuck stickers with yes on the green light. Amazing. So, you know, every time the lights went green, you could see this. It was just lovely symbolism, I yeah. guess, which sort of as a as a young teenager, I uh, I thought was great. But no, I mean, on the ground, no. You know, uh, I suppose so often these big political changes do take a long time to, mm. to change society, you know. So not not really. But, but I suppose it, it was at the time, 98 would have been at the beginning of quite a quite a big economic boom, actually. Yeah. Well, I suppose while you wouldn't necessarily have seen huge changes in, in culture necessarily, you know, I, I wouldn't have been mm. seen dead at a rugby match, and I'm sure <laughs> the opposite of me, you know, some other middle-class guy yeah. wouldn't have been seen dead at, at Casement Park to watch a Gaelic match. But but having said that, you, you could sense that, you know, there was more prosperity. There was, there was less army, definitely. I think the mm. police... The name of the police got changed, and um, instead of driving around in big grey troop carrier things, I yeah. guess they changed the colour of them to look more like you know regular British or Irish police. Mm. Um, so you would have seen changes like that, and as I said, you know you would have had things like a coffee shop culture developing, like a Wendy's restaurant opening. I, wow. I don't know why that was such a thing and it closed <laughs> after a couple of years, but I think there was maybe an idea that we're becoming a bit more of a normal society. And mm. um, I left Belfast in two thousand four. And, uh, you know, I think from probably in and around then, it, it started to change quite mm. a lot, uh, you know, sort of quarters of cities, you know, there's like the cathedral quarter and, you know, you would have all these sort of cool bars opening yeah. and, you know, the Titanic Center and um, different shopping centers in the center of the city opening. And I suppose you can trace that back to the Good Friday Agreement, because if you look at it in a very pragmatic way, yeah. um, you're not going to get investment if there's a chance that your business is going to get blown up. No, absolutely so, uh, not. <laughs> Yeah, I think it definitely played a role in the development of our generation. Mm. No, I haven't said that. I, I left, to be honest. I'd, I'd never live there again, you know. Yeah. And, uh, my wife and I are sort of imminently expecting twins, and I don't think I would want them to grow up in, in a society which is quite so divided. Even though huge changes have been made, and, you know, obviously I love going to, going to visit my family there yeah. and, and whatnot, but... Um, still a society which which i've left so you know yeah. uh, I, it could be very hypocritical for me to sit here and, and and talk about you know this this generational shift when actually 16 years ago i left mm. and um kind of knew that i probably wouldn't go back uh, especially once i went down to quite a metropolitan confident city like dublin didn't fancy the idea of going back to live in, in quite a segregated society this is probably gonna we're gonna draw it to a close shortly but I've, I've just sort of been wondering this as as you've been talking you left to go to dublin for university i guess was it mm-hmm. oh, and, and was the plan as you'd been growing up always at some point to to go south or was it just a decision that you made as you got towards that time to make a decision if that makes sense 
Like, is there a focus within Catholic communities in Belfast that at some point, you know, that, that there's a desire to live in the South, so to speak, for a, for a period of time? Or is it just was it just something that was personal to you? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> uh, I've, I've never considered it. I, I think so, because, uh, you know, Dublin, Dublin is your capital city as, uh, as an Irish person. And we would have went down to Croke Park uh, to see uh, Gaelic matches. And that's obviously is quite a huge cultural focus. And, mm-hmm. and you know, maybe in, in my head, sort of subconsciously, I, I wanted to go there. I think more realistically, I, I love history. And I knew from the age of 14, I yeah. wanted to be a history teacher. Amazing. Because uh, I like performing and I like history. So <laughs> I think I must have been like my GCSE course. I thought, huh, oh, I could be like this guy. Amazing. Um, so the university that I went to, uh, Trinity, featuring in normal people for the moment, yeah, they had a, a single honours history course that lasted for four years. So I was like, brilliant, more history. Um, plus my older brother was living down in Dublin as well. Okay. And yeah, I think it just felt right. Uh, I think maybe the idea of going overseas, <laughs> overseas to, you know, <laughs> Glasgow, <laughs> um, was maybe a bit too far, but but no, it um, it just felt right to go there, really. But as I said, yeah, I mean, I think largely it was just that they had the they had the course for me, and you could just choose history from first year and not have to do it with any other subjects as well. I think that was probably me just reading too much into something. Um. <laughs> oh, no, 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 I think you're right too, because I, I I think there is something there. Yeah, yeah, there definitely is something there. Mm. Yeah, because actually, you could probably argue, well, why you know, I couldn't have got, I could have gone, but I don't know, big university in london or, or something like that. yeah I, I think you're right there, there's there's definitely something there yeah aside from the, the the practical points um thank you so much for talking to me paddy i've been thoroughly riveted all the way through just before we go is there anything else you want to talk about that we haven't covered no i don't think so i okay. don't think so i mean i think that ultimately i think i think every every irish person but it's specifically people from belfast love the idea that they can tell someone who's not from belfast they're you know the war stories of the trouble <laughs> so i probably have about 15 to 20 other stories which which i would love to tell <laughs> and then of course i'm sure someone else from belfast if they were listening would say oh that was nothing let me tell you a real story <laughs> uh but no i i don't think i've got anything else to, to add but well thank you so much for having me on this no been, worries this has been wonderful um so yeah thank you good thank you very much yeah, thank you too. Um, if there is anything you'd like to plug, now is the time. If not, it's fine. You can just say goodbye and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, my my sister, is, uh, I suppose she's she's an influencer. She's, she's done a TED Talk. She, she has kind of dedicated her life to, I suppose, stigma within Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And she has a podcast called Deep Shit, but it's spelled S-H exclamation mark T. Okay. Um, and uh, she talks about more modern stigmas within within Northern Ireland. So not Catholic, Protestant, not mm-hmm. uh, nationalist, unionist, but more uh, single mothers, uh, race, Muslims within Northern Ireland. So she takes quite an interesting approach to uh, Northern Irish society. So yeah, so if anyone's found this uh, shockingly engaging or even somewhat <laughs> interesting, then she's definitely someone to look up, yeah. Okay, awesome. Thank you. I'll put the details for that show in the for that podcast in the show notes so that you can find it. And uh, thank you once again for endu- for uh, for enduring me uh, for, for for joining me on this. Episode. <laughs> I've loved it. No, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Cheers, Dan. Bye. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed our little chat, and a massive thanks to Paddy for joining me for this episode. Just a reminder to check out his sister Orla's podcast, Deep Shit, and that's with an exclamation mark instead of the I. 
and his family's coffee roasting business, Bowden Park Coffee Company, who really do roast some of the best coffee going. The links to both are in the show notes. Then, hopefully, you'll join me next episode when I'm joined by professional footballer Brooke Hendricks. I'm really excited about this episode, being a massive fan of the women's game. In the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram at 50p Movie Club or email me directly on let me introduce myself podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.